Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually, consciously living today. Here's your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome to the Yoga Hour. I'm Yogacharya O'Brien. And today our topic is the healing science of yoga. What is it and how does it actually work? And we have uh, someone here who is really going to help us explore that question, Eddie Stern. Um, He's a yoga teacher, author, and lecturer from New York City. He's known for his multidisciplinary approach to furthering education and access to yoga, as well as his teaching expertise in Ashtanga yoga. He's been practicing and studying yoga, Sanskrit, and related disciplines since 1987. Um, Eddie is the author of One Simple Thing, a new look at the science of yoga and how it can transform your life. And really, this book is um, how I reached out to Eddie to join us on Yoga Hour because it is very uh, compelling in terms of the scientific basis of our yoga practice, both with posture and with meditative disciplines, helping us see how yoga can really help us lead uh, happier, healthier lives. You can find out more about Eddie, his classes and programs at his website, which is Eddie Stern, just like it sounds, E-D-D-I-E-S-T-E-R-N.com. And he's on Twitter at Eddie Stern and also Instagram at Eddie Stern. Welcome, Eddie. I'm so delighted to meet you and glad you're here for Yoga Hour. Me too. Thank you for having me. In our in our pre-chat of the show, it's like we're already old friends. I know. <laughs> I just love how the divine helps yeah. us make these connections, and it's a wonderful thing. So I'm happy we can share that divine connection with our listeners uh, today who are joining us really from all over the world. So uh, let's take a moment before we begin our conversation to just breathe. One of the tools that you speak about in your book as critically important for us, not just that we breathe, but that we breathe consciously. So let's begin by a moment of becoming aware of our breath. I might start with a good deep breath and let it out. A fully conscious breath, noticing the feeling of the breath in the nostrils, the coolness of the air coming in, and the air a little bit warmer moving out. Just simply breathing and noticing the breath, the feeling of the breath 
as we inhale, cool air, exhale, little warmer air. And with this moment of breathing, I invite you to open your heart and your mind to the infinite. To be aware of that ultimate reality, that in which we live and move and have our being surrounding us and indwelling us. One life, one power, one presence, the life of our life and the breath of our breath. So simply breathing, noticing, connecting. Breathing in, breathing out. And as you notice your breath, you might begin to notice that the mind becomes a little calmer. The body becomes a little more relaxed. And with that, let us simply intend to take that calmness and that relaxation with us into our day or evening ahead, knowing that as Paramahansa Yogananda said, we carry our portable peace within us. I mentioned in my introduction this morning that I uh, was drawn to want to meet Eddie because of this very masterful book he has written, One Simple Thing, A New Look at the Science of Yoga and How It Can Transform Your Life. So I'd like to begin, Eddie, with a question of what inspired you to write this book? Well, first of all, thank you for the kind comments about the book. Um, the main inspiration behind the book or the reason I wanted to write this was that I have been doing yoga for a long time and I noticed certain benefits about the practice that it brings to me. And I also noticed that um, my friends who do other different types of yogas seem to have the same exact benefits. They feel grounded, connected, maybe uh, able to manage their emotions better a greater sense of purpose or meaning in life, or maybe they feel more flexible or stronger, uh, sleeping better, better digestion, you know, 10 basic things or so that people are going to report if they're doing yoga. So you grab anyone off the street and you say, do you do yoga? And they say, yes. And you say, how does it make you feel? They're going to tell you one of those things. You know, I feel more connected. I feel calmer. I feel less stress, etc." And then you say to them, well, what kind of yoga do you do? One might say, I do Kriya yoga, I do Ashtanga yoga, I do Kundalini yoga, I do Shivananda yoga, integral yoga. I do goat yoga, I do, you know, <laughs> 50 or so different types of yoga. And they're reporting the same things. And so the question came to me, well, how is it that such radically different approaches to doing yoga can have the same outcomes? 
Mm-hmm. And how is it that, you know, even just by applying the word yoga to any set of physical, mental, and breath-oriented disciplines, are we getting very, very similar outcomes? Um, especially mm-hmm. these outcomes of feeling a stronger sense of knowing who we are and being connected to purpose in our lives. So I wondered what that was and what were the mechanisms that were happening that were causing that. And that's basically what the book is. It's an investigation into what are the underlying mechanisms of yoga that make it so effective for so many millions of people, regardless of what kind of yoga it seems to be. That's such a powerful question and such a powerful reflection because those of us who have um, practiced any form of yoga know that what you're saying is true. And I know you begin your book that way. And that sort of drew me in, you know, that question of, well, how is it that even in a single yoga class, right, you can have um, a dozen people who are coming in with different needs? You know, maybe somebody's grieving, maybe somebody's having uh, difficulty with uh, some physical diagnosis diagnosis or problem, but everybody seems to go out (laughs) feeling better. And so uh, how does that work? And uh, that is such a compelling question. And, uh, and you've done a fabulous job of raising it up um, into into the awareness uh, of the reader. Um, So I know that this book unfolded really from your own life and your own journey with yoga. Um, So please tell us a little bit about that. Uh, you mean my my past, my history? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Whatever you want to yeah. reveal to us, but you know what? Uh, you know you're here in the West, um, yeah. so you uh, were not necessarily raised in a yoga family, no. um, and so you <laughs> you you came across it at some point, and um, and then it took root in you um, in this powerful way. So what happened? How did that happen? Um, well, I mean, I, like many people, I didn't have a terribly happy childhood. Um, you know, I didn't have a horrible childhood, but I, I had, you know, my, my struggles and traumas. As a teenager, I was uh, immensely unhappy in the educational system. Uh, I wasn't a great student. Uh, I, there were many occasions where I happened to not show up for school. Well, and I was, you know, and I didn't see the purpose of education. Mainly that's what it was. Um, one of my earliest memories of school was when I was about three years old in nursery school. And I remember this vividly, even now, coming in for the first day and thinking to myself, when is this going to be over? <laughs> yeah. I started counting the days, you know, until like I was done with school. Um, but I was, I had an English teacher, Mrs. Jane Benditson, when I was 15 years old. And we were reading Siddhartha in her English classes, the first book we read that year. Uh-huh. <laughs> starting high school and things were getting serious. You know, when we walked into her classroom the first day, she was like, this is high school. There's no more joking around. Like, I don't put up with any of that. And she was strict. And um, she um, said to us when we were reading this Siddhartha, the three most important questions you can ask yourself in your life are, who am I? What am I doing here? And what do I do next? And I remember that as vivid as day. It's one of the only things I remember from high school. And from that moment, I started asking myself those questions. And that set me on a, on a quest. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have the language or the context to understand that I was on a quest to know who I was at that point. Mm-hmm. It was a spiritual quest. And when I was 18 or 19, I found a yoga teacher and started doing some yoga. 
and that was it. Game over. <laughs> it's so thank God for those teachers. You know, my my story is a little bit similar in although it didn't happen for me until my first year in college when I had uh, an English professor who who taught um, Vedanta through Shakespeare. <laughs> so the same kind of existential questions um, that had me seeing, oh, a lot of these um, great writers and sages were really asking the same questions. And, you know, where do I find out, you know, more about that? Um, so thank you for sharing how you entered into that question yourself. And you know, Mrs. Benditson um, taught me a lot. And one of the things that really will always stand out in my mind um, was that I ended up getting kicked out of that school. And um, I was kicked out because uh, I lost my wallet. The wallet was found by the bus driving company. They turned it into the principal. And I happened to have um, some cocaine in my wallet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that was, of course, didn't go over too well with the school. Mm -hmm. They decided to not invite me back, which meant to throw me out. And Ms. Benditson was the only person who stood up for me. Mm. The only person who said, hey, you, maybe you need to look at why this 16-year-old boy was doing hard drugs mm -hmm. rather than say, here's a, a, a punishment to inflict upon him by, you know, relieving him of the opportunity for this education. And when I found another school to go to, there was only one school in New York that would let me in, um, that um, she came to visit me to see oh. what I was doing. Oh, what a beautiful story. It's so a person who is super strict and super tough, who knows how to love and knows how to care. And also she could spot a student who is really on a quest um, to to realize truth, to awaken. And, you know, it's interesting, the whole, you know, scenario with drugs, of course, that that very question, you know, arises again and again at satsangs um, that I'm at, which is, you know, can't we just take drugs? You know, because people are looking to alter their consciousness, and um, so it, it's still something happening, not just with young people today, but I find you know people in the spiritual um, atmosphere are even still asking that question. You know, can't I get to samadhi faster by you know taking ayahuasca or you know something that is going to open my consciousness? And um, you know. I always say, well, yes, it, it will do that, but it won't let you stay there. And so, um, you know, yoga is a perhaps slower but steady way of um, having that altered state of consciousness that, that we're all seeking. You know, we want to get out of the confines of that ordinary waking state. Um, yeah. And this is what Neem Karoli Baba said, exactly that. He said after Ram Das gave him three tabs of LSD, uh, and it didn't affect him at all. He said, yes, with this, you can have darshan of Christ. But after a few hours, you have to come back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and today, I mean, some some things that are not so good can happen on that route. So um, you, you've called your book One Simple Thing. And it's a wonderful title. And of course, I got into the book and it's like, you know, one one road with, uh, you know, it's like the naughties, 72,000 tributaries of this one simple thing. Um, but what are you pointing to with this one simple thing? I'm pointing to yoga. 
Mm-hmm. Yoga is basically a simple thing. Like yoga is basically not such a big deal. It's, there's a lot of different ways of doing it. Almost pretty much anyone can do yoga who wants to. Literally anyone who wants to do it can. Um, Krishnamacharya used to say that if you can breathe, you can do yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we've had students at our school who have been going under undergoing serious chemotherapy or have had huge surgeries where they've been in hospital beds for weeks or months at a time. And they just mentally do their practice with their breathing. Inhale and visualize their practice. And it helps with their mental state, their emotional state, and their healing process. Yeah, you tell a beautiful story in the book about um, a friend who had a stroke and actually used bija mantras, um, chanting mantras uh, internally um, that completely aided her healing process right there in the hospital. Yes, her gag reflex came back. Yeah, amazing. Um, so, you know, we start with, let's, let's please give us your definition of yoga. Well, as a, as a traditionalist, uh, which is what I am, uh, I go by Patanjali's definition of yoga, which is yoga shchitta vritti nirodaha. And this is an equation for most of your listeners probably know this, but yoga is um equals the nirodaha, or the stilling, or the selective elimination uh, of the vrittis, the activities in the chitta, the field of the mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not necessarily field of consciousness, because uh, yoga is based on sankhya, and consciousness is, and prakriti are two separate, eternal, uh, infinite factors that Mm -hmm. don't influence each other. So uh, consciousness is going to be its own thing and prakriti is its own thing and in prakriti you have this mind um you have cosmic mind and you have individual mind and in the individual mind we have activities and those activities are the things that we identify with so the slowing down of the speed of those activities and the choosing of one particular activity such as a mantra or the breath or uh you know any of the other things that are offered um is is the process of yoga so mm-hmm. this elimination or their purposeful choosing um, of what activities will be happening in the field of your mind is yoga. And then the result of that is the seer remains as the seer alone and not as the activities. Mm-hmm. That's what I follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same here. This um, and is really, you know, waking up um, to know yourself as the self, capital S self, and not to have to be identified with the contents of the mind or the ego, which, which brings that sense of bondage. I was just referring to that people are hoping they can just take a pill, um, to get out of, um, and in your, in your book, of course, you, you're, you're talking about, um, this, um, research and investigation and i and and also i i honor some of your own deep insights about the connection between yoga practices and the nervous system and how that influences the the body mind and so um let me say something about how yoga can help us with mental restlessness So the, the two basic things that we were looking at from a physiological level were um, that we have this top-down information processing in the brain, and we have bottom-up information processing. And bottom-up means that we do something, some activities that are effective in the brain stem, 
And that send message is up from the brainstem through the limbic system to the prefrontal cortex. And then we have top down, which is we do something with the cortical region of the brain. It sends messages to the limbic system and down to the brainstem. And then that affects physiological processes. So they're going from the bottom up are neurophysiological and from the top down are neurocognitive. And one of the things about yoga is that it has both of those things. So, so an example of a, um, of a neurophysiological would be postures and breathing. So breathing is controlled or regulated through the brainstem and different respiratory centers. So if we take over that automatic breathing thing, I'm sorry that my, um, I should turn off my phone. So that's uh, podcasting 101. The, um, if we override a, um, uh, a brainstem function, an automatic function like breathing for a little while, what happens is we are now taking control of this particular brainstem function for a little while during the day. We're regulating it. We're creating patterns and messages of rhythmicity. And those messages of ryth rhythmicity give us a feeling of safety because now our survival instinct in the brainstem is being met with something very measured, very paced instead of something frantic and hectic um, or perceiving threat. And so the rhythmic breathing, which creates the message of rhythmicity, then moves itself up to the limbic system where we register fear and memory and things like that. And it says to the fear centers, everything is okay. And then from the fear centers, it goes up to the cortical regions of the brain where we express compassion and empathy, strategic and long range planning and social interaction. And then it sends messages to that level saying, everything is okay. You can now connect to people. You can connect to the world. You can be safe. You can be secure in yourself. So when you do some simple breathing practices, you feel an automatic change from on a physiological level of the heart rate slowing down, the blood pressure being regulated, maybe some other things happening on a musculoskeletal level. And at the same time, you have these messages going up to the higher brain centers that allow us to connect better to the world. So people, everyone who does yoga, they all feel that because they're breathing in a measured way. So whether you do Iyengar yoga or Kriya yoga or Ashtanga yoga or any of the other yogas, you're going to be directed to breathe in a measured way. So automatically you're going to get that outcome. And then another thing that happens is while you're in an asana or meditating or doing a breathing practice, your teacher might say to you, um, you know, Keep your mind in a state of open monitoring where you're observing the sensations that are arising. You're moving your awareness through your body so your body can begin to tell you where it needs to be. And this engagement of the cortical regions of the brain where we practice things like open monitoring awareness or focused awareness then does something as well, which says now you are connected because you are aware. And in that feeling of connection, a message goes down to the limbic system saying everything's okay, you're connected. And then the limbic system signals to the brainstem and says everything's in alignment, you're connected. And then the brainstem sends those messages throughout the rest of the body through the vagus nerves and other nerves saying, hey guys, everything's okay. You know, you can slow the heart down, the blood pressure can regulate, your muscles can soften, et cetera, et cetera. Your digestive impulses can improve. So all those things happen. So in yoga, we have both of those. We have moving from the bottom up and from the top down. And one is a, a feeling of like, um, of um, a creating survival is addressed for safety. And at the top level of the brain is connection. 
Mm. So we reconnect both of those things occurring. I really appreciated the way that, you know, your book goes into this very deeply. And I, I want to tell the listeners today that the book also includes wonderful diagrams and charts of, of these regions of the brain and how they are uh, connected to yoga practice. I found that uh, very helpful. And I also have found it very um, hopeful um, to have us understand in a sense, more scientifically, um, what it is that yoga does for us. Um, I mean, we know experientially what it does for us, but to have uh, this exploration that you've put together in your book of what uh, scientifically, how that can be explained in relationship to our nervous system um, to help us connect to ourselves and to one another and to uh, and to really to life with a capital L, to, to have that sense that we are um, a part of all that is. Um, and I think, you know, of course, yoga makes us more effective and understanding more about how it works um, helps to make our practice more effective, you know, to, to know um, what to do. Um, we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're just going to talk more about yoga um, and a little bit more about the scientific information of um how yoga affects the nervous system, the brain, and um, how it can transform our life. You're listening to The Yoga Hour with my guest today, Eddie Stern, uh, author of this wonderful new book called One Simple Thing, a new look at the science of yoga and how it can transform your life. You can find out more about Eddie and his teaching schedule at his website, eddiestern.com. Uh, we'll be back with you in just a few minutes uh, looking at how yoga actually works for our bodies and our minds um, in the spiritual sense. We'll be right back with you. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. You're listening to The Yoga Hour, living the eternal way with your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome back to The Yoga Hour. I'm Yogacharya O'Brien. I'm here today with Eddie Stern, who is a well-known teacher of um, physical and philosophical practices of Ashtanga Yoga. And today we're drawing from his book, One Simple Thing, A New Look at the Science of Yoga and How It Can Transform Your Life. And uh, in the first segment, we, we touched a little bit about um, the way, uh, Eddie, in which you have um, worked with uh, other scientists and yoga practitioners and philosophers to really explore these connections that the ancient rishis um, made with yoga practice, the nervous system, the breath, the brain, the physiology. Um, and it's just stunning, isn't it, to look at, you know, thousands of years ago, um, how they were just tapping into the physiology of the body and the brain 
and um, using that to transform uh, consciousness and provide entry into this deep exploration of who we really are, what we really are. Amazing. Totally. (laughs) And also, you know, for the listeners who are not aware of it, but yoga is called by two different names. It's called the Yoga Vidya. And Vidya means science or knowledge system. So it's the science or knowledge system of yoga. Uh, And it's also yoga bhyasa, which means the practice of yoga. And through practicing yoga, you enter into the science of yoga. So they had a very complete and elaborate language for physiological systems and nervous system functions and unseen things that were specific and targeted. There was deep insight. And that was all in Sanskrit. And now we have a language of science in the West, which is also very specific and targeted um, and descriptive. And it's just another map, another way of describing things. So the yogis had a map and the Western scientists have a map as well. And what I was interested in doing was looking at these two maps and seeing how they correlate with each other. Um, And where do we see overlap? There's some brilliant, uh, well, much of the book is brilliant. And um, of course, as a longtime practitioner of Kriya Yoga, I was really interested in um, your own investigation into how um, the uh, overcoming of these primary obstacles, which are called the kleshas, um, through the practices of Kriya Yoga, connect to changes that go on in the brain and nervous system. So it's a huge topic, but you've done a good job of making it accessible. So I'm, I'm going to prevail upon you to just give us a little insight about this connection between brain nervous system science and the kleshas, how we overcome um, the basic obstacles and maybe start even just by identifying them for some of the listeners who are new to yoga philosophy. Sure. So in chapter two of the Patanjali Yoga Sutra, the first sutra or verse says that there are three actions of yoga, which are the Kriya Yoga, the actions within yoga. And these are Tapas, Swadhyaya, and Ishvara Pranidhana. And Tapas are physical disciplines. Swadhyaya is going to be repetition of mantra and also self-evaluation. And then last we have Ishvara Pranidhana, which is surrender. And what these three things specifically do is they weaken the kleshas or the obstructions that occur in the mind of practitioners. And they prepare one for the deepest levels of meditation called samadhi. And that is what the Kriya Yoga does. So then comes the question of, okay, so what are the kleshas? What are the things that are being thinned? And these are the five reasons why people suffer. And the first is not knowing who we are or not having a full knowledge of who we are, which is really a yeah. or, or knowing who we are, but being wrong. <laughs> uh, here we go. And uh, when we don't fully know who we are, then there are four other things that happen. Uh, number one, we create a narrative of who we think we are, the, the false self, the false narrative. And that narrative is made up of two things. One is raga, our attachments to the things we like. And dwesha, our aversion to the things that we don't like. And both of those are attachments. One is an attachment to pleasure. Another is an attachment to avoiding displeasure. And then the final thing is called abhinivesha, which is that because we don't know who we are, 
we cling to the false sense of self because that's all we know. And if that false sense of self is pulled out from under us, the rug is pulled out from under our feet, we don't know who we would be at all because we already have avidya. So we cling even harder to this sense of our asmita, our narrative, because that's all we know, and that's called clinging to life. Um, clinging to life is also a fear of death or a fear of extinction. So what I wondered, uh, again, in this particular portion of the book was, how is it that doing a physical thing, a tapas, like postures or pranayama or food restriction is going to weaken my narrative? How is it going to lead to a greater sense of knowing who I am? Because at a topical look at the kleshas, avidya, asmita, raga, dvesha, abhinivesha, not fully knowing who we are, a false narrative, our likes, our dislikes, and clinging to life, those sound like mental things to me. Those sound like things that, you know, might be troubling us on a mental level. So how is it that a physical thing is going to weaken a mental occurrence? So then what I thought was, well, the glaciers must have a physiological basis or physiological location somewhere in our body. Why did you think, why did you think that? What, what is the, what is the inspiration for that? Well, because we are embodied beings. And in yoga, the mind and body are a continuum. So everything that happens in the mind is happening in the body. Mm -hmm. A lot of things, there's a locus of information processing. Um, You know, our heart, where we feel emotions, uh, is sort of a locus for feeling emotions. Um, The belly is a locus for feeling fear or threat. And those those sensations are felt and they're translated through the vagus nerve to the brain and the brain interprets it as a thought that we have a fear. But there's some, there's some, you know, stimulation coming from somewhere and it has a locus. So I thought, well, maybe one of the reasons why I could start looking at the brainstem was because the brainstem houses our survival functions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our functions are the things that keep us alive. And we know that if we hold our breath, like say we're underwater and we see the surface and we're swimming up to it, the closer we get, like the more we're desperate to breathe. Or even if you're doing pranayama and you hold your breath for a few seconds longer than you want to, you desperately want to breathe. And your body begins to override you and says, time to breathe. Why? If you don't breathe, you're going to die. And so that's a clinging to life. The body saying don't die is the body's way of clinging to life. And clinging to life is abhinivesha. Mm-hmm. So there we have the physical, physiological connection to that psychological mechanism, which has so many tentacles <laughs> into how we live, um, how we cling to our identities, how we cling to situations, and so on. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So if, if you know, if we're cling, if someone insults us or challenges. Um, you know, a thought of an assertion of ours. You know, what happens? We get offended. Our heart rate speeds up. Our palms get flushed. Our mind starts to go a little bit quicker. And we have a physiological reaction to an emotional hurt. And so where that's being processed is in the brainstem. Mm-hmm. So begin to control brainstem functions, we can begin to control our overreactions to the demands of the world and the way that we feel the world is treating us as well. And what are those ways to do it? Well, asanas, pranayama, food restriction, and that's the first level. Those are all the things that are going to take care, and those are all tapas practices. Mm -hmm. Another type of tapas 
um, is the restriction of behavior, trying to practice kindness, mm -hmm. trying to be honest, trying to be sexually responsible, trying to not be greedy, um, not cultivating cultivating the opposite <laughs> in terms of our lower our lower drives and tendencies you know putting on the break to that and then coming forth with a new response yeah and you know when you talk about the putting on the break um we have a, a physiological break called the vagal break from the vagus nerve and the vagal break is the thing which is going to slow our heart rate down on an exhale and then when the brake lifts on an inhale, it allows our heart to speed up. And this is heart rate variability. And the heart rate variability being, um, being changeable, meaning our heart slows down on an exhale and it speeds up on an inhale, or our heart speeds up when we exhale and it slows down, I mean, when we exercise and it slows down when we're resting. This is, um, uh, uh, this is the indicator of a healthy cardiovascular system. And it's also an indicator that our nervous system, particularly the parasympathetic nervous system, is doing what it needs to be doing, which is, you know, taking care of physiological functions. So um, when we're extending our exhale, we are stimulating the vagal break to slow the heart down. And that leads us to having a mental and emotional pause at the same time, because when our heart rate variability is, um, is not high, meaning there's not a lot of change in the heart rate, um, <laughs> then we're prone to anxiety and depression and misperceiving the environment and not reacting well to external situations. But when our heart rate, heart rate variability is high, then we are less prone to anxiety. We are more prone to expressing compassion and empathy and having positive social interaction. So we have these very clear links between physiological activities and emotional and mental states, which has been shown in science as well. So when you talk about the break, it is an actual physiological thing as well as a mental and emotional thing too. Absolutely, and what is so helpful in terms of making this connection is, of course, the state of hyper arousal that you know many of us are in today um, with technology, the pace of our lives. Um, and, you know, the amount of time people are spending working online, you know, all, all of this that, that puts us in a state of um, hyper arousal. So to be able to modulate that and calm the mind uh, and nervous system is a great contributor to health. Um, let's come back to the kleshas because um, they're, they're a family that we, we, we want to know well and how to, I always think of them like our cousins, you know, the kleshas that we want to, <laughs> want to learn how to um, deal with them. So we were looking at this connection between, if I if I heard you right, a binivesha, this clinging to life and the brainstem. Yes. Yeah. And then, then there's some, uh, you know, when we look at um, how the other survival instincts uh, or, or egoic tendencies arise, you have made the connection to different parts of the brain. So please carry on and tell us about that. Okay. I love your... Um... The glaciers as cousins is fabulous. Glaciers uh, are coming for Thanksgiving, you know, be prepared. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so 
you know, a lot of what I was looking at, uh, as I said before, were maps. You know, maps are not the territory. Uh, they just show us the territory and give us an idea of how to navigate things. And um, and so a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the rishis uh, or, or the yogis who were passing down teachings were great map makers. And they gave us maps of uh, internal states and maps of consciousness, like Yoga Sutra is a map of, of inner consciousness. So... And then we have our physical maps um, that are like brain functions and nervous system functions. And um, Paul McLean has a very wonderful model of the triune brain, or the three-part brain. One part is the reptilian brain, sometimes called the lizard brain. And this is the brain stem and the cerebellum. And this is related to our autonomic functions where fight or flight is stimulated from as well. Fight or flight is when we are in hyper arousal reacting to a threat in the environment. So uh, the practices of tapas, many, meaning asanas and pranayama, food restriction and behavioral restriction, are going to affect these normally autonomic functions. But then we have our limbic system and the um, sometimes called the mammalian brain. And here we have our emotions, our memories, habits, attachments, uh, we feel fear in this area. So all of these types of things are occurring in the, in the limbic system. And when we look at the practice of Swadhyaya, Swadhyaya has a traditional meaning of repetition of mantra and then a later meaning of self-evaluation where you examine yourself. And when you examine yourself, you have to examine your habits. Why do you behave in particular ways? Well, then you look into your memories, the things that happened earlier. And as well, through chanting of mantras, you're going to form an emotional connection with the either the deity that you are chanting to invoke or the meaning of the mantra. They happen to be something like Soham or Aham Brahmasmi, something more Vedantic. You're still going to form an emotional feeling connection to that. That's called bhavana. The bhavana is, is the mood or feeling that we have associated with the practice. So all those types of things, whether it's self-evaluation or repetition of mantra falls into this category of I'm dealing with my memory, I'm dealing with my habits, I'm looking at my emotions, and I'm looking how I can begin to fill my, my long-term memory with the type of memory patterns or thought patterns that I want to have in my life to support my growth, to support my happiness, to support healing to support empathy and compassion and connection to others. And those are very particular thought patterns. They're ones of exactly those things and not reinforcing memories of trauma, of hurt, of betrayal, of shame, etc. So it's and, and it relates to what we see, you know, in the initial uh, potentially initial definition of yoga. You know, we can we can identify one way or the other, right? With with the seer, the self, or with these um, patterns in the mind. Right, and those five patterns that we have, they can be helpful or not helpful. <laughs> exactly. So here you're talking about how um, swadaya can help us um, create, in a sense, more helpful, more useful um, ways of uh, relating to ourselves yeah. and to life and to others. 100% more useful and helpful ways of um, having balanced, healthy emotions and being able to look at ourselves honestly too, without shame or guilt or fear. And then the, the fundamental identity, which is, you know, through that self-inquiry, 
right? Which is, you know, what am I? Who am I? The question that we we began the program with today. So um, that that one, I think, seems to move into the third um, uh, area of the brain that you conclude with. So here you're talking about that midsection, and um, so I'll let I'll let you fill that fill that in. Okay, great. So then we go up to the neocortex. This is the cortical region of the brain with the much spoken about prefrontal cortex is in this part <laughs> of the brain. And this is the quote unquote rational thinking brain. This is the brain where language evolved from and math, abstract thought, imagination. We have, um, uh, you know, different changing levels of consciousness that are happening in this brain. We can reason, we can connect, we can respond to the outside world. All these things are happening on that level. So for example, in the limbic system brain or in the brainstem, we don't have language or math or, you know, uh, imagination. Well, in, in the limbic system, we do. Uh, we have more things like emotions in response to the environment, memories and habits and fight or flight and things like that. So when we get up to the cortex region, we're really talking about the human brain. Like how is it that how are humans distinct from other life forms? We have this kind of a brain, which allows us to do things like trigonometry or, you know, develop language that helps us connect on, you know, on this level and learn other people's languages as well so that we can, can communicate with other people who don't speak the same language that we do. And also reflect the quality of being able to um, reflect on our actions, right? Exactly. And reflect that we exist. <laughs> yes. We have awareness and, and how do we want to live with our existence? That's something we all need to think about more, especially the people who are in charge of petrochemicals and opioids. Absolutely. And here in this so-called so higher center of the brain, um, we're, we're looking, you've connected here to um, Ishwara Pranidhan. So, yeah, so say yeah. about that. Cool. So Ishwara Pranidhana is surrender to the Lord if you are a theistic person. Uh, if you are a non-theistic person, you can still practice yoga and you can still practice surrender. Maybe you surrender to nature or to energy or to the unknown or to a feeling of divinity that might not be related to any specific religious um organization or affiliation, but just is pure being. And the reason that we surrender to that is that when we don't surrender and we think that we have absolute control, then we, we are deluded by the idea that we are in control of all of the outcomes of the things that we do in our lives. And obviously we are not in control of all of our outcomes. We're in control of some of them, not all of them. Uh, and so this idea of surrender will allow us to accept the fact that things are going to happen. We don't always know what's going to happen, but we can be mentally, mentally situated that when it does happen, especially if it's painful, that we can be present for it and be connected within ourselves enough that we can respond appropriately. And um, that's that. Well, and it seems to me, um, you know, in my own investigation of this, that this is also um, where we experience wholeness, 
and that the the lack of that experience is um, what drives that sense of you know insufficiency. Something's missing, right? That sends us on this whole trajectory in our life of looking for what is going to complete us. And, um, you know, looking for that something that is missing and, you know, what is missing um, generally is our own connection to the self, um, this experience of wholeness or sufficiency or fulfillment. Um, you know, that was so mysterious to me in, in, in yoga, you know, that we could actually find that sense of well-being, which comes from um, surrender of the sense of being separate because that sense of being separate is always going to be less. It's always going to have missing attached to it um, by its very nature, by very definition. A sep- something that is separate um, always has lack built into it. So many times people are functioning you know, from that level of consciousness. So here we're talking about um, in the highest sense, being restored to our own innate wholeness, which changes everything. That's beautifully said. Beautifully said. And um, when you look at that feeling of wholeness, uh, that is basically what samadhi is. It is <laughs> a wholeness. And um, the practice of Ishwara Pranidhana, the result of it, according to Patanjali, is he who is established, or that person who is established in Ishwara Pranidhana, uh, has the perfection of samadhi. So samadhi siddhi Ishwara Pranidhana. So what comes, how do you perfect your feeling of wholeness and unity consciousness? Through Ishwara Pranidhana. And as you said, like it's this level of um, brain information processing where we can feel that there's something missing. And I love how you said that, and it's something that I've always said in regards to people who come into yoga if they're they're you know you look you start a yoga lecture and you have all these people in a room and you say well the reason that we are all here is because we all feel that there's something missing mm-hmm. and it might be something different for different people like mm-hmm. maybe for some people it's a, you feel a spiritual lack for mm-hmm. other people it might be an emotional hole somewhere for other people it might be physical but the fact that we feel that something is missing and we want to fill in that missing hole is why we come to yoga, mm-hmm. not go just to a gym to work out. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, if we look at it in terms of Western psychology, you know, and the the whole, um, you know, ego, I like to say, you know, ego is committed to our unhappiness, <laughs> which is a, which is a an odd thing, you know, because we think, well, ego is always, you know, trying to, you know, we're always trying to be happy and secure. But underlying that, of course, is the sense of separate self, which, you know, has that fundamental uh, commitment to something missing. And so um, it's brilliant, you know, of course, how the Rishi saw this ultimate surrender of that as being the way in which that innate drive, you know, for wholeness is fulfilled and we uh, overcome that egoic identity, which is, um, 
you know, it, it is always connected to the sense of something missing. So um, I love the connections that you've made um, between the, the clashes and, and the brain. And I, I want to encourage everyone, of course, to get your book, um, study it, look at the um, wonderful illustrations in there. And um, as I say, it's a, it's a, it's a very thorough book. Um, and yet it is really about one simple thing, which is no matter what form of yoga you're doing, um, you'll find that you have entered into a path of transformation. And, uh, so Eddie, tell us, um, as we're getting, drawing near to the close of the, our segment today, um, what is your encouragement or inspiration for practice for our listeners today? my personal inspiration like why i practice or yeah or for them what what you would give you know uh i mean of course you've written this whole book about <laughs> that gives you a lot of good reasons to practice and very scientifically based and um with inspiration to boot but but since we have you here we want to hear from you you know what would you say you know what do you say somebody walks into your class and you're going to say um you know in in 30 seconds you know here's why you should practice Oh, yeah, I'm a horrible, horrible proselytizer for yoga. Uh, <laughs> don't think, in my 30 years, I think I have like convinced one friend maybe once to, to do yoga. Uh, so I think that the best reason to do yoga is because you want to do yoga. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. Eddie Stern, you can find out more about him at eddiestern.com. Thanks so much, Eddie. It was a delight being with you today. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today.